I'm Max Barnett, Commercial Strategy Lead at Delta Trey. And I'm David Kushnan, Head of Content at Leaders. And this is The Blueprint, the podcast for straightforward strategic thinking in sport. Over the course of this series, brought to you by Delta Trey and Leaders, we'll be exploring how to build and execute great strategy and how to avoid doing strategy badly. We'll hear from some of sport's leading strategists about how they think, plan and execute strategy with flexibility, bringing projects or partnerships to life and injecting creativity. And we'll take you inside some of sport's most recognisable organisations for real life examples of where strategy worked and sometimes where it didn't. Welcome to The Blueprint. And welcome to The Blueprint. We are back for our podcast examining strategic thinking in sport. It is a pleasure to be back in the leaders slash Delta Trace strategic lair with you, Max. Uh, The difficult second series is upon us, but the good news is I think there's plenty to build on from an exciting season one. Exactly. Thanks, DC, for having me back. Uh, Yeah, really looking forward to season two, especially after... The, uh, the great first season we had with six great guests. Um, I think what I'm looking forward to in this season is really getting into the, the detail and starting to ask some of the fantastic guests that we have for more kind of practical day-to-day tips. Um, obviously, we learned that strategy is an oft-used word, so we're looking forward to actually getting under the hood and seeing how listeners can maybe take and learn from some of the guests that we've got coming up. All right, let's get into it. Let's uh, hear who today's guest is on The Blueprint. I'm Alex Sugarman, Executive Vice President of Business Operations and Chief Strategy Officer of the Chicago Cubs. Okay, Alex Sugarman, Chicago Cubs, storied baseball franchise. What do you think, Max? One of the most recognizable team brands in the US? I think it is the fourth biggest or most valuable uh, team in or club in the MLB. Indeed, indeed. Alex oversees all ballpark operations for the Cubs, including event operations, facility management and safety and security operations. Additionally, he is responsible for the organization's strategic planning and corporate development functions. Uh, prior to that, he was at Galatioto Sports Partners, where he served as an advisor to the Ricketts family uh, in their acquisition of a controlling interest in the Cubs in Wrigley Field and 25% of Comcast Sportsnet Chicago. So he is right in the thick of the Cubs and all that they are. Yeah, really looking forward to the conversation today, especially as the Cubs are competing in such a competitive sports uh, um, kind of landscape, both across the US, but also within the uh, the Chicago city and city area as well. It's going to be fascinating to understand how they're, how they're winning on, on and off the field. Max, shall we get this strategic party started? Let's do it, DC. All right, to the strategy ballpark with Alex Sugarman, Chief Strategy Officer at the Chicago Cubs. This is The Blueprint. Alex Sugarman, it is fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for joining us on The Blueprint. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. All right, let's get started. And uh, I want to dig in a little bit to start with to this job title of yours, EVP Business Operations and Chief Strategy Officer. 
And uh, as you will discover on this podcast, I'm very much playing the role of the layman when it comes to strategy. So tell me, in your words, what does a chief strategy officer actually do? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and, and sometimes a little bit amorphous. Um, you know, the way I like to think about being sort of chief strategy officer is trying to help the organization decide which direction that we should be going uh, over a long period of time. Uh, and the role that you often sort of find yourself playing there is one of uh, sort of counsel and advisor uh, to the team president and ownership uh, and the other sort of senior executive leaders who are generally in charge of the various functional areas uh, of the business. So um, it can sort of be a hybrid role from setting sort of broader strategic direction to also incubating some of the new initiatives uh, and, and being sort of a champion and cheerleader for sort of a catalyzer of change as you're trying to move the business in new directions. That's quite quite a description of your job. How exciting. And if you Alex, if you're going to kind of boil it down to, to kind of three words in terms of that that strategy, what 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 would that be? How would you define it in three words? Three words. I'd say charting the course. You're out there trying to to help read the environment and help the folks who do have their hands on the wheel, which is you know, the, the president and the other sort of functional executives, make the right decisions about to where you want to take the business in the future. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, your specific work uh, at the Cubs. Obviously, we are very familiar with them, as is everybody in sports. One of the most storied team brands, team names in uh, in world sport, really, let alone um, Major League Baseball. Tell us a little bit about um, some of the key strategic initiatives and projects that really occupy most of your time. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the easiest way to talk about that is the evolution of the Cubs over the last you know, 14 years since the Ricketts family sort of assumed control of the franchise. You know, at the time, they, they purchased the club from the Tribune Company, which had really leveraged the Cubs to be media content for their owned and operated you know, distribution channels of WGN and the Superstation, which was a, uh, a television network that went to 70 million homes across the U.S., and then uh, WGN Radio, which was a very large radio station. And uh, the Cubs for them were extremely efficient content uh, that they, they sort of used to drive those businesses. But the Cubs themselves were really not considered... Uh, like a core business uh, that they focused on. And so when so the Ricketts family took over, there was a lot to do because the business had just been underinvested for a long period of time. So if you sort of roll back you know, to, that, to that time, um, you know, we focused first on like, infrastructure improvements, and that was both physical and human capital and you know, IT and the like. Uh, so we built a new Dominican training academy. We built a new $99 million uh, spring training home uh, in partnership with the city of Mesa. Uh, then we undertook a, a very large uh, historic renovation of Wrigley Field, which took a number of years. Uh, we acquired a number of the rooftop properties uh, around Wrigley Field. We did a real estate development project in land adjacent to Wrigley Field. Uh, that was a, one of the sort of first large sports adjacent mixed use projects, uh, something called Gallagher Way. Uh, and then we launched uh, Marquee Sports Network, which is a single team uh, owned regional sports network. And so that that was sort of the first sort of 10 years from the business side. You know, at the same time, uh, Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer sort of fully rebuilt the baseball side. And we were fortunate enough to sort of win our first World Series in a very long time in 2016. Uh, and so those sort of business and baseball strategies sort of moved side by side. And that was you know, the better part of the first sort of decade. You know, once you got through that, then it became a function of, okay, where do you take the business from there? And 
you know, obviously you have a really you know, solid and functioning so core sporting asset, but then what are the other things that you can sort of build on top of that platform? Uh, and you know, since that time, we've sort of launched our own real estate development company, Moki Developments. We have our own venture platform called Moki Ventures, uh, and we're sort of looking at sort of other ways to continue to sort of you know, full, you know sort of expand the, the uh, portfolio of the, the things that we can we can do as a business. It's f- fascinating hearing about all of the work that you've uh, you've been uh, busy with uh, since you, since you've joined. Ownership is obviously very uh, uh, common at the moment. The, the topic of discussion, especially on this side side of the pond with uh, EPL clubs, can you tell us a little bit more about kind of how you work with the ownership with the Ricketts family, and then how you sort of operationalize what their goals are and what their strategy is? How does how does that dynamic work? Yeah, I mean, we're extremely fortunate to have the Ricketts family as owners. They are, uh, first of all, they're just amazing people. Uh, they set a tremendous corporate culture, which I think is extremely important. Uh, you know, oftentimes, I think the culture of sporting organizations really sort of begins and ends you know, with, uh, with the ownership. Um, they also uh, do a great job in sort of how they approach owning a sports franchise. They really take it from a board level. Uh, they set board level strategy, and then they they hire good people and they empower them to do their jobs and they let them sort of uh, let them do their jobs from an sort of execution operational perspective and sort of making sure that they sort of operate sort of at that board level and, and create executive accountability without actually sort of trying to get uh, sort of get sort of too deep into the data data decision making is like the perfect sort of framing for how uh, I think ownership should approach managing sort of clubs and assets like these. Um, I think the last thing I would say about them is that they, they appreciate the fact that at its core, a sports team is a civic asset. There can be an owner, but ultimately these are sort of clubs that, that are very important to the municipalities and, com- and fan communities which follow them. Uh, and so they take that responsibility extremely seriously. Uh, and so the way they sort of think about the decision architecture and, and the vision that they have is sort of through that lens, which I think is, is again, extremely important because if that's what these clubs are at their, at their core. That's really interesting, I suppose, throughout that description of how you're working with ownership. You haven't really talked about commerce or hitting revenue targets or that, that, that sort of thing. It's really interesting to, to kind of hear that, the way that they, they think about the management and, I suppose, ownership of, of the asset in the club. Can you tell us a little bit more about like how, how often do you work with them? Are you, is, it, is it monthly? Is it quarterly? In what format are they directing the, the team? And, and what do you find helpful as a head of strategy to get from them to then operationalize? Yeah, I would say maybe to your first point there about like to the revenue targets, I think those are often byproducts of larger strategic objectives as opposed to like the sort of primary objective, right? Like we're trying to accomplish certain strategic things. You know, the byproduct of that is, okay, we have to have a very strong sort of you know, financial plan and financial targets. And so we have those, of course, um, but they sort of are sort of layer two versus layer one. That's how I would just sort of think about that in terms of how we work, work with them. You know, we have a board. Uh, the, the, the club is owned by... Um, uh, the sort of four siblings. Uh, we have a board uh, that they sort of participate in, but you know Tom Ricketts is our, the chairman of the board. He's sort of the day to day executive, so we work most closely with Tom. Uh, we sort of meet with the sort of four siblings on a sort of more quarterly basis, and um, you know the. But in terms of you know what's sort of most important in terms of operationalizing strategy, just having real strong alignment and executive buy in. 
At the other end of the um, the scale, I guess, when you're not managing up, you're sort of working with all sorts of people across the organization at, at all kinds of levels, I guess, to sort of take them on whatever you know strategic journey you're on at that point in time. How do you, and, and obviously not everybody sort of operates with the same kind of strategic mind, I guess, and sort of buy-in even perhaps. And, and I wonder how in your role you work at all levels and with all types of person within an organization to sort of ensure that the the strategic approach of the moment is is being um uh, approached in the right way i guess yeah it's a great question i think it's as i reflect back on the last 14 years i think the answer to this question is actually different at different points in time because the organization has gone through different levels of strategic maturity so so early days, I think it was the, just the notion of what is a strategy and why is it important? And when you're doing that, uh, I think a couple of things are really sort of critical. Like one is like just kind of level of authenticity um, and sort of demonstrating a desire to try and help all the people in the organization achieve like their sort of discrete individual functional goals and, and showing them how if we have a strategy that can be additive to what they're trying to accomplish. Um, that's just like the function of getting people bought into the notion of having strategic planning, going through strategic planning cycles, which is takes time and energy and energy that they otherwise could be using to achieve those sort of just discrete like functional goals in like that one year. So like getting folks bought in to like what that means uh, uh, is like was like so, so step one, and that also requires a lot of consistency, like consistency on messaging. Um, over time, we've had very uh, we've been very blessed with a continuity of senior leadership in our organization. And those senior leaders, I think, are, have really bought into the notion of having sort of a strategy and, and driving towards a strategy. And then, you know, at that point, it's a function, it becomes just working with them to help sort of articulate and update what that strategy needs to be on a you know, one-year basis and a three- to five-year basis. And it becomes more partnering with them. And, and our street senior leaders have really taken the lead on driving the strategy through their teams. And we do a lot of um, work. We try and be thoughtful around how we sort of link our strategic planning cycle to our operational planning cycle, to our goal setting process that, so everything sort of cascades, you know, from the top to like the goals of all of our uh, associates in the organization, just to make sure that we're sort of linked and that, you know, people have sort of clear, clear direction that aligns to the strategy. So, so Alex, when you're, when you're setting out on that, that uh, next phase of, building a, a five-year plan. We, we notice, obviously, with your background, you've done an MBA at Columbia. Do you, did you take any of the frameworks or methodologies that you sort of learned there and put them into practice? And could you kind of describe potentially what those methodologies were and how you how you build this five-year strategy? This is the how hard did you work at college question. <laughs> um, you know, the funny thing is I didn't come with a sort of consulting background, I actually came with a sort of investment banking background. So, you know, the, the area that we, that our sort of strategy and corporate development group is, we sort of run sort of two areas of the business. One is a strategic plan. The other, other side is sort of corporate development. Um, and so my background's more on the investment banking side. And when I was in business school, I actually didn't take much in the way of strategy courses because I wasn't really planning to get into a, a sort of strategy role. So when I joined the organization and we set a, sort of embarked on the first strategic plan, uh, I had a lot of conversations, and the one that was actually most impactful for me was was with uh, someone at the Green Bay Packers, uh, and and 
she was kind enough to actually sort of walk me through how they went about their strategic planning process and how they went about sort of formulating their first strategic plan. Uh, and to be honest, like we just replicated their process the first time through. And uh, we, I had a colleague who is still a very, uh, still a colleague uh, uh, who I work with very closely. And the two of us uh, over the sort of first summer, uh, it was the summer of, of 2010, we just spent a lot of time uh, with our executive leadership uh, trying to sort of codify all the things that we were doing and create a very systemic framework for how we were going to go forward. And we came up with like 14 strategic initiatives and a five to seven year plan. But um, I would say the frameworks that we we took were frameworks that I actually learned while I was on the job through conversations with uh, other people in the role who were uh, gracious enough to share with, with us how they went about it. Brilliant. And, and I can imagine, you know, for listeners out there, it's sort of yeah. It's it's many ways to skin a t- skin a cat. You know, there are lots of different ways to to go about building the strategy. But it sounds like, if I'm hearing that correctly, the important thing is to have a process, to have people bought in, to have people aligned, and then obviously you can then move on with the execution and the communi- communication right to the broader broader audience, the you know bigger team. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about you've created the created the strategy? You have the framework. How do you go about sort of measuring it, if at all, and, and how important is, is measurement and data to the implementation and execution of a, a good strategy? Yeah, I think it's one of the critical roles of a strategy function is to create levels of accountability into the organization. Um, there are ways that you can do that. I mean, there are some organizations have very specific KPIs that they, they measure each year, and it's sort of very sort of data-based. Um, our approach has been a little bit less sort of data measurement and more a sort of annual sort of calendar and check-in cycle where we're, we're meeting with our uh, sort of executive leaders, which I would sort of define as like the top 25 sort of leaders in the organization on a quarterly basis to review uh, sort of what's going on in their area of the business and review sort of the areas of the strategy that they're uh, in charge of, of managing, driving through. And that's how we ensure that we sort of stay on, uh, sort of on course and we're uh, sort of constantly having conversations and checking, and we have sort of the level of sort of continued buy-in and 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 sort of bias for action against the things that are important for us. So I, I think your point is right, though. I, there are more than one way to stick in a cat, um, and I think it's very sort of organization specific, and and it's also a little bit business specific in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and I suppose as you said, when you talk about unique company culture coming down from the ownership. In the same way, you want to, if I'm hearing it correct, correct, right? You want buy-in um, from the lead, from leadership, from those creating the strategy, and, and having your own flavor to it is actually a good thing, right? It's almost the brand and brand look and feel of that strategy, which that can then be communicated instead instead of some sort of cold uh, strategy framework from a book, right? For, yeah, for sure. And I would say the buy-in piece is probably the most important thing of all of it. You can approach it many different ways, but Having first ownership and the chief executive bought into the notion of like a strategic planning process, I think if you don't have that, uh, it becomes extremely challenging uh, to successfully sort of align an organization behind a plan. Uh, so in our case, I just give you know Tom uh, and Crane a ton of credit um, for being you know, complete champions of that. And then uh, you need your entire senior team so bought in. If you if you have that, then I think you've accomplished really the hard part. And then there are many ways that you can successfully implement a strategy. 
Yeah, and in, in the first season of this podcast, we heard from many guests and they talked a huge amount about trade-offs, right? Strategy is about trade-offs. It's about what you don't do. How how do you address that? Because there just must be so many different opportunities for you to, just in your description, like talking about a real estate business and all of that sort of thing. How do you think about trade-offs and what not to do and how to assess what those different opportunities are? Is it going back to your sort of investment banking days and being very cold and uh, calculated in terms of the financial returns? How do do you think about those trade-offs? Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, time is finite. You know, capital and resources are finite, and therefore, any so there's sort of a trade-off hidden in almost every decision that you make. Um, you know, again, going back a long so ways back to you know 2010, that was a very very sort of easy because we had to almost do everything. Like many times, like great companies with great strategies have a very sort of small list of of items that they are maniacally focused on, and they're just going to execute those things. You know. In our situation in 2010, like you almost had to do everything. Uh, and so the real challenge was how do you order the operations and the sequencing? Now that the sort of the so main transformation of the core business is sort of complete, now it becomes a little more challenging in terms of, okay, so where are the sort of different sort of growth vectors that you want to explore? Uh, and that just becomes a, a question of like prioritization uh, and sort of return on time and return on capital and how you sort of balance those things across um, you know, across an organization and how they align with our ownership objectives, because certain owners have different objectives and and uh, and and different sort of goals that they're trying to achieve out of uh, sort of owning a, a sports asset. And you want to sort of align those two things together in terms of how you sort of make decisions. Yeah, I suppose coming with a very kind of financial approach to an ownership group that talks about being custodians of a kind of community team you, you can't you will never win that battle right because those are the intangibles right in terms of the impact that the cubs are having on on the community in in chicago yeah and i think you know it it's that and it's it's you know you can look around sports and this is not really you know a cubs thing but you can look around sports you can see different teams taking sort of different strategies some are more sort of regional focus some are more international expansion some just want to sort of own clubs in all leagues um, some are sort of very focused on just their specific club and that's, you know, all that they want to really sort of focus on, whether it's for, you know, municipal pride or like that's what they're passionate about. So you know, I think all of those are completely noble objectives um, and they're all sort of bespoke and specific to a sp- uh, an ownership group. And so, you know, when you're sort of in one of these roles, uh, when you're working on behalf of an ownership group, you're trying to align the decisions that you make and the company makes to what their objectives are. And you've talked about alignment a few times uh, so far in the, in the conversation, Alex. And I suppose another element of alignment is the alignment between the franchises and the league itself and the league-wide strategy. And I know there's a really close relationship, particularly in the US major leagues across the board. 
between the franchises and the sort of central organizational body. Tell us a little bit about the dynamic of that from a, a Cubs MLB standpoint and uh, where and how you share strategy, where strategy might differ slightly and how you sort of manage and again, navigate your way through that. That's a great point because, you know, oftentimes we want exactly the same things, which is, you know, Major League Baseball as an industry to be successful. You know, there's a, an unbelievable sort of rising tide of, of an industry will sort of lift all boats, you know, both from a, a customer engagement perspective and a fan engagement perspective, and then also from a valuation perspective, you know, of, of the club itself. Um, there are also times where the interests of the league and the interests of the clubs diverge. Uh, and, you know, how you manage through that while also retaining the fact that at our core, we're all business partners and we win together uh, is is sort of critical. I mean, we like to think of ourselves, you know, at the Cubs as, um, you know, adjutants for continued progress and improvement uh, and just sort of, sort of advancement of the game in, in, in general. Um, you know, obviously, we're going to do that with sort of a, a lens towards, you know, how to make the Cubs the sort of most successful franchise we can and deliver sort of the best outcomes for our fans. Uh, but always within sort of the framework of, of how is it sort of aiding and helping the league. And I actually, I give Major League Baseball and Commissioner Manfred a lot of credit on, on sort of leaning into some of these sort of bigger initiatives these last few years. Um, you saw it this year with the, uh, you know, so sort of the introduction of, of the pitch timer. It was probably the biggest change that we've seen in the product in baseball in, in well over a decade. It's had amazing results. Uh, it was not easy to do. It took took like, I think, eight or nine years of implementation, some really challenging sort of conversations that he had to manage through, uh, you know, with, with the Players Association. Uh, but it was an enormous uh, improvement in the product. Um, you know, and you're, you're starting to see that the league sort of make some, some meaningful strides internationally. We actually were just over in London playing uh, the Cardinals uh, yesterday. They sort of announced that a couple of teams are going to Korea next year. Uh, so we're seeing sort of the, the sort of, foundation for a really interesting international strategy start coming uh, to the fore. And, and so how, how can we help them achieve those goals that is valuable for the league while at the same time, uh, you know, pushing forward on what we need to do with the Cubs. And is the dynamic of the relationship between team and league that you just described there similar when it comes to the Cubs and your fellow Chicago sports teams across all the different major leagues? Yeah, I think Chicago is an unbelievable sports town. We have some of the best fans in the world. And this is a situation where I think if all the teams are successful, we actually benefit each other. You saw this unequivocally in Boston. Uh, there was a period, there was a decade where I think that, you know, every team won multiple times maybe. Uh, and it just, so the whole city was on this sporting high and that benefits everyone. Um, so yeah, we do work closely. We've been partners uh, at times with all the other teams, uh, you know, partnership with the Bears on some content stuff on Marquee Sports Network. Uh, we we previously owned uh, a sports network in partnership with uh, the Blackhawks, the Bulls and the White Sox. So yeah, there's a spirit of partnership for sure amongst the clubs. On On that note, both with sort of collaboration with the league, Alex, and with the other Chicago sports uh, sports teams. What are some of the areas that you see emerging of potential growth, revenue diversification that you're that you're working on at, at the moment and trying to crack together? Yeah, it's a, I think one of the big ones in the U.S. recently has been sports betting. Uh, that's a new opportunity uh, that's really presented itself in 2018. Uh, and that an area of focus uh, for a lot of clubs over the last four or five years. Uh, in our case, we just, uh, as of like 
a week ago, uh, opened a new uh, large sports book adjacent to Wrigley Field in partnership with DraftKings that we're, we're extremely proud of. Um, uh, and so I think you see a lot of clubs sort of working uh, up on that. I think the other area that's requiring a lot of energy and attention right now is just media in general. Uh, there's a, in the United States, there's uh, some real pressure on the traditional cable television distribution model. Uh, and a lot of the teams are reliant on regional sports networks and, and, and sort of media economics that come from their local TV market, which has been under a lot of stress as a result of you know, cord cutting and sort of digital distribution of, uh, sort of video packages. Uh, and teams trying to figure out together and collectively what they need to do to, to transition the model a little bit to make sure that they can retain those economics and continue to monetize what is at its core extremely valuable content. Yeah. And how are you thinking about sort of revenue diversification in terms of going direct to, to fans, um, obviously beyond just the ticketing? I saw that, you know, on average, you got the attendance of 30,000 people, people coming to your to your game so not kind of fans coming to stadium but rather monetizing those who don't have the means or access how are you kind of thinking about digital membership and that type of thing yeah so direct to consumer is obviously a big topic as a result of the media dynamics i just described you know in it's a little different the way u.s sports organizations organize where like our so digital footprint really is in baseball is our home television territory so the areas are in the around chicago Whereas Major League Baseball does a lot of this with digital uh, and e-commerce uh, commercialization outside of that area. So we have to work closely in partnership with Major League Baseball because um, you know, we have like sort of the inner sort of core and they have like sort of the outer markets and we do that collectively. Yeah. And obviously, just full disclosure, Delta Tray obviously run the uh, the dot-coms for, for MLB and, and the clubs themselves. You um, didn't mention that, Max. I, sorry. <laughs> I, did you see how I seamlessly shoehorned that one in? Sorry. Yeah. Um, one thing we're, I'm, I'm really focused on, really interested in at the moment is obviously the the end game, right, is to to engage the fans to ultimately drive acquisition of new fans, loyalty, ongoing ongoing fan avidity, that sort of thing. But one of the things that one of the key building blocks as we see it is that having access to fan fan data, rich fan data in order to truly understand what the fan needs, um, how you can ultimately fa- uh, monetize that. But it's incredibly complicated. And um, I'd imagine is that part of your kind of strategic concerns at the moment? Or do you feel like you have that nailed? Or does that uh, does that type of strategic initiative sit with the league yet? Yeah, tell us where you are in that journey. Yeah, again, it's another one that sort of is bifurcated between the, the clubs and the league. I mean, we sit on all the clubs data, they sit on all the league data. To do this well, you want to have a sort of the, the sort of broadest, widest sort of perspective on this. So we need to work together. But this has been a huge focus of ours for the better part of a decade. We spent a lot of time, even before we put a CRM system in place, we, we focused on just our... IT infrastructure and getting our data architecture uh, correctly. So we actually, I think, are in a great spot from a data aggregation perspective. I think the challenge that that we're really focused on right now, and as I think a lot of other clubs are, is how do we sort of take the data that we have and then put, you know, sort of use it in the marketplace to deliver sort of the right messages to the right fans, you know, at the right time to 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 drive a purchase decision and impact purchase behavior. And and if that, Alex, if that's very sort of operational, what you've just talked about, it's it's not easy, right? You talked about you doing it for a, a decade. Did you 
pin this sort of investment and strategic initiative about fan data tech stack to the overall you know, business strategy that's coming in from the ownership or 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 did they did they understand that um the ownership that that needed to happen and sort of didn't require convincing uh no this was part of our original strategic plan back in like 2010 uh, and it, it was i think everyone saw a line behind it really early couple of final questions for you alex um really interested to know when you look out at the wider world of sports and also entertainment and whether it's individuals or organizations, um, who do you, and obviously a lot of this happens under the bonnet, so it's not necessarily (laughs) always particularly visible, but in terms of what you see and what you sense as great building and execution of strategy, where are you looking? Who are you looking at? Yeah, I think what's really fun right now uh, in in sport is that there are a lot of places you can look for organizations doing this really well. And I'm not sure if we were having this conversation like 15 years ago, I don't think you would you would say that, honestly. And that the, the ecosystem has evolved so much and the level of, of talent that's around sports right now and uh, both inside organizations and levels of like institutional capital, it just has brought just a lot of really good, thoughtful people into the sports ecosystem. Uh, you know, I think as I think about that question, I probably would sort of bucket it into like, you know, sort of like teams and then sort of like non-teams uh, would maybe just be the easiest way. On the sort of team side, I think a, a lot of really great examples of clubs executing multi-club models. Um, you know, the first one comes to mind part because we're just you know, sort of good friends with them as the, the Fortnite sports group uh, team uh, you know, that started with the Red Sox, then Liverpool, now the Penguins, uh, you know, have investments uh, in some music, music production. I think you have to really tip your hat to Kroenke uh, and what he's been able sort of to build and, and assemble between Arsenal and his teams in Colorado and uh, the Rams and also the on-field success he's achieved. I've always really admired MLSE. I think they were one of the first sort of multi-club, uh, you know, all the way back, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, and then recently, I think what Josh Harris and David Blitzer have been doing in terms of aggregating uh, teams across leagues has been extremely impressive to watch that level of execution. Um, you know, in terms of more on like the, the sort of corporate side, Fanatics recently, I think, has done a really nice job. I think what they what they did on the sort of the trading card, so transaction in particular, was just extremely uh, an extreme ex- example of phenomenal strategy execution. Uh, F1, I think, has been doing a really nice job. They obviously got huge tailwinds from Drive to Survive, but they've leveraged that you know, very, very well. Uh, on the so institutional capital side, Ogdo Sports Partners, I think, is an example of really good strategy execution. They saw a gap in the marketplace. Uh, it was extremely well-timed uh, when they launched, given COVID, and they've executed their strategy very, very well. Uh, so yeah, I think there are a lot of lot of folks out there, uh, and there are there are others. You know, I, I could probably sort of keep going, but uh, there you know there are, there are a lot of other people who are doing a really nice job with this. And final question, uh, and I'm actually going to expand this question out. We always ask people for their strategy book of choice, but I wonder whether we should expand it out, Max. We're deciding this on the fly, Alex. Uh, strategy book or podcast of choice? You know. That's how people consume stuff now. Uh, what what have you got for us, Alex? Uh, I I really appreciate that expansion because I'm more of a strategy podcast <laughs> listener too than I. Data. I had the sense for some reason. I don't <laughs> know why. Uh, 
but uh, I'll give you I'll give you one of each, which is my 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 favorite sort of book of choice, which is not a strategy book, but it's uh, it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's by Daniel Kahneman, who is a sort of behavioral economics uh, sort of Nobel Prize winner, I think, out of Princeton, um, and it's all about sort of uh, sort of biases and heuristics and sort of way that the brain operates, and it's all around like sort of trying to eliminate. Like the knowing what the, your biases are, so you can eliminate them and make sort of having better decision making frameworks. Um, and from a, a podcast, the the one I sort of enjoy the most is called the Knowledge Project. Uh, it's a sort of a series of inter- interviews, and it's all about sort of, you know mental models and sort of making good decisions. And it's it's I find it really interesting. A couple of great recommendations. We will add them to our list that we're building, uh, Alex. Uh, and look, we really appreciate you spending uh, some time with us today uh, in the middle of a very busy season. So uh, much appreciated and really good to chat. All right. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it.